morning, everyone. You can go and take a seat. It's good to see you today. We're glad you could join us today. In this uh, message series that we started last week, we're, we're talking about how to make a bad decision in the hope that we might learn how to make better decisions. The Bible is full of people who made a lot of really bad decisions. And it's in those stories that God really is saying to us, don't do that. Learn from them. Don't make their mistakes. So that's exactly what we're doing. We're looking at five of the worst decisions that were made by people in the Bible, and we're trying to draw out and pull out lessons that we can learn from each of them. So we started last week with the story of Esau, who sold his future because he was thinking short-term. Today we turn our attention to a little-known fourth king of Israel. His name was Rehoboam, and he became king at the highest point in Israel's history. But with one foolish decision, he began a civil war that eventually led to the weakness and destruction of Israel and their eventual captivity. Now, why did he make such a dumb decision? Well, it's because he refused to accept wise counsel and ended up doing what he'd already set his heart on doing. Here's what happened. The expansion and prosperity of Israel had put a great strain on the people, both in terms of the taxes that had been assessed and forced labor. So they approached Rehoboam, the new king, at the beginning of his reign, and they asked for relief. Here's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 6 through 9. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. How do I respond to this request for relief? They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. They'll be loyal to you. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. A few verses later, we read of the announcement, his response to the request of the people. Here's what we read in verses 13 through 14 of the same chapter. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. This touched off a military response, a civil war, and that one decision began a downturn, really, from which Israel never recovered. 400 years after the decision was made, the, the nation was so weakened by this civil war that it was conquered, first the north and then the south, and the people were sent into exile, both to Assyria first and then to Babylon. Eventually, they were allowed to return to their land, but under the rule of other nations. And this went on for a long time. In fact, it wasn't until 1948 that Israel gained its independence again. That's a lot of damage that was started with just one person and one decision. We tend to think that our decisions only affect us, but it turns out our decisions are really connected. They're connected to the people around us, and especially they're connected to the future. Our decisions really are, are like a domino. All we can see is the decision. What we tend not to be able to see is all of the implications and the consequences are going to come from that decision, either good or bad. And we push over that domino, and then it's out of our control. The future begins to flow out of the decision we made. That's why our decisions are so important. Rehoboam made two classic bad decision blunders, and we'll look at those this morning. The first classic bad decision blunder is this. If you want to make a bad decision then make your decision before you ask for input. Set your heart on what you want, and then go looking for input. That's a recipe for a bad decision. The first thing that Rehoboam did was ask the elders. 
This is what we read again. He says to them, how would you advise me to answer these people? Now, this sounds like the way you should go about making a decision. Ask for input. That's a good thing. But it turns out he immediately rejected what the elders said. He, he rejected the advice, it says, the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. So he hadn't even heard yet what his childhood friends were going to advise, and he hadn't taken any time at all to consider what the elders had actually said before he rejected it. Why did he reject the input so quickly? Well, we know why, because we've done this same kind of thing too. We've asked for input, but we've already made our mind up sometimes about what we want to do. And so we're really not looking for input. And if anyone gives us input that doesn't fit in line with what we've already decided we really want, then we're going to dismiss it. We're going to consider it flawed. We're going to say to ourselves, they don't have all the facts. That, that, I don't need to consider that. And the reason is because we're not really looking for input. Rehoboam really wasn't looking for input. He was looking for signatures to support the decision that he'd already made. And we tend to do the same thing. We've already set our heart on something. And then under the guise of getting input, what we're really looking for is people who will support our decision. Again, that's a recipe for a very bad decision. Because what happens is we then surround ourselves with people who will tell us what we want to hear. And avoid the people who might not support our decision. And those are the people that usually can give us some of the input we really need to hear if we're going to make a better decision. It's amazing how quickly we can sense whether someone's going to agree with us or not. It's almost like a spidey sense. We can just tell, this person's going to probably go along with what I really want. And I know if I talk to this person, they're going to tell me something I don't want to hear. It's going to contradict the decision I've already made in my heart. And so what we do is we cherry pick our input. We go to those that we think are going to agree with us and just avoid those that we think are not going to agree with us. Now, we like to think that we are independent thinkers, but the truth is we all tend to be social thinkers. What I mean by that is we pick a group to be a part of, and then that group ends up shaping the decisions that we make and the future that flows from those decisions. Now, we all agree, in theory, that the best decisions are impartial. They're based solely on the facts. That's called being objective. That's the best kind of decisions, objective decisions. What the word objective means is that the object, that's the root of the word, is what drives, it's what determines the decision. And an object is something that you can see. The facts determine the decision. That's ideal. Subjective is the other kind of decision. What that means is the subject, which means the person, you, the people you get input from, that's what really drives and determines the decision. It's a subjective decision. Now, why can't we just be objective when it comes to decision-making? Well, the reason is because so many of the important decisions that we face and need to make are not simply about objects. Now, objectivity is very easy when you're dealing with decisions about visible objects. For example, when you leave this room today, uh, my assumption is you're going to leave through the doors. I don't think I've never seen anyone try to walk through the wall because it's visible. It's obvious. You can see the doors. You can see the exit signs over the doors. So 100% of the time, people tend to make an excellent decision, but it's because it's visible. So where to exit is a no-brainer, clearly objective. But what about the decisions that involve things that you can't see, that are not visible? For example, what about a decision... 
who I should marry. How can you see how that's going to work out? Or what about a parenting decision? That's really hard to see. What about a future job change or a move to a different community? It's hard to to see how all of that is going to roll out into the future and imagine what's going to happen. Or how about relating to a God that you cannot see and asking him for input? Now, if you could look, say, for example, at the person that you're dating, and you could just by looking at them in the eye know exactly how this marriage might turn out, well, then you could be completely objective about that marriage decision. Or if you're a parent and you're facing a challenging situation with your child, and you could just look at them and think about it, and you could, you could literally see the future and how it would unfold if you did this or you did that, well, then you could make a completely objective decision. But we can't see. We can't see that far. And it turns out that all of the really important decisions in life are highly subjective because they involve more than just the data. So does this mean we should just guess when we come to an important decision, maybe flip a coin? No. That's foolish. I mean, you can still gather a large number of objective facts and enter them into your mind as evidence to be weighed in order to make your decision. But you have to realize that you're also going to have to venture beyond just the data points and get out into the realm of subjectivity to make the decision. You're going to have to take the pieces that you do have, the things that you can see, the data that is clear, and add to that the pieces that you don't have, the things that you cannot see, in order to come up with a decision. You're going to have to fill in the blanks with your own best judgment, and that is highly subjective. That's why I say we are social thinkers. We're not just computers that can crunch the raw data and spit out analytical decisions. We continually must mix that objective data with the subjective input that we hear from others and then make our decision. The problem is that the people who give us input don't present themselves to us with wise and foolish labels taped on their foreheads. You know, if someone was walking up to us and it just said fool across their forehead, we could say, yeah, that's, that's okay. I, I'm not looking for input. Thanks so much, though. And if they had wise, we could say, you know, I, I really want to hear what you think about this decision. But people don't present themselves as obviously foolish or obviously wise. So the question then is when it comes to getting input, how can we filter the foolish input from the wise input in order to make better decisions? Well, it begins, first of all, with the most important of all relationships. That is our relationship with God. So if you want to make a good decision, it begins first by saying yes to God. If you want to make a good decision, say yes to God first, before you set your heart on any direction, before you make your decision. Now, this is really challenging because we tend to, over time, kind of gravitate to what we really want And then we ask God, but our heart's kind of already set in what we really want. Or we get input, but we are already set. It's really hard to make a good decision when we've already decided before we get input. So the first relationship we need to get input from and say yes to is God. God is a subject. He is not an object. In other words, he is a person who invites us to have a real relationship with us. And what that means is he wants to give us input. He wants to help guide our decisions. He is the single largest source of input as we make decisions. 
But unlike all of the other people we're going to get input from, God can see the future. He can see how all the dominoes are connected because he's stacked them all up. He knows what's going to happen. So the biggest question when it comes to making decisions is what does God want me to do? And God, thankfully, wants to give us input. He'll give us input through the pages of the Bible as we read it over time and work to build it into our life and apply it. He'll give us input through the advice of wise people. But all of the input that God gives us is based on one condition, and that is that we first decide to say yes to him. After we decide to say yes, then he'll turn the lights up on the clarity. But we have to first yield our heart to him before we get clarity. Jesus makes this point in John chapter 7, verse 17. People are coming to him to try to figure out, is he really from God or not? And here's what he says. If anyone chooses to do God's will, that's the yes part. I've already decided I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. I do that first. Then what will happen? Then he'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So people are coming to Jesus to try to figure out, try to make the important, the most important decision of all, is he from God or is he just a guy making stuff up? But Jesus knows that this is not just an objective decision. The real issue as people make this decision is subjective. And the, the challenge is that most of the people that are coming to him don't really want to do God's will. That's why he puts that up at the front. If you decide you really, you're going to do whatever God says, then you'll get some clarity on this. If not, you'll never be clear on this. See, Jesus had already done a bunch of miracles. That's objective. People were seeing this stuff. They were writing about it. But they kept coming to him. If you read through the Gospels, you see this again. People keep coming to him and say, well, could you show us another miracle? Well, how many miracles does it take for someone to make a decision? And this was the problem. They didn't need more data. They needed to make a personal decision about whether or not they really wanted to do God's will. Or whether, like most people, they just wanted to keep doing whatever they wanted to do. That's the key decision if we're going to get clarity from God. This is what tends to happen today on this particular decision. Is Jesus from God or is he just some guy made stuff up in history? A lot of times people will say, you know what, I, I need some more proof in order to make that decision. And they may have some legitimate questions that need answers. But many people that I've tried to help with over the years tend to have a question, and then they get some answers. Okay, that makes sense. And now they have another question. Okay, that makes sense. And then they have another question. And as the years go by, you, you get the sense that I don't think you want to make a decision. And usually what's lurking down below the surface is there's some part of their life that they have, again, that spotty sense that if I decide to follow Jesus, he might want to mess with this part of my life. He might want to have me do something different, and I don't want to. So, under the guise of being objective, I'm going to keep throwing up, I need more miracles, I need more proof, I need more evidence. But the real issue is subjective. I, I just don't want to do what God wants me to do. So Jesus is saying, like any important decision, this is subjective. If you have a reason why you don't want to do God's will, then no amount of objective facts or input are going to help you. So gather all the objective facts you can when you're trying to decide what God's will is on a matter, but realize that you, the subject, will need to first decide whether or not you, the subject, will do God's will, whatever he says. 
If you don't, then your subjectivity will blur the objective facts. So if you're serious about really trying to find out whether Jesus' teaching, as it says, comes from God or whether he's just speaking on his own, then the best thing is to settle first in your heart that you're going to go wherever the evidence leads. If the evidence leads to yes, you're willing to say yes. You're willing to mess with whatever part of your life you think Jesus might want to change. You just say yes and then start looking to decide if that's really true. And if you're making another decision, you're trying to discern God's will on another matter, same thing is true. Decide first that you're going to do whatever God leads you to do. Now, for me, what that means is I've usually got two or three things that I've already in my heart said, I don't want to do that. And I have to get to the point where I say, God, even if you want me to do that, I'll do that. I have to surrender. You have to surrender your will to God in order to get clear on what his will is. If your will is not surrendered, there will be no clarity. You know, we want God to show us, and then we'll decide. You know, pull back the curtain and show us everything, and then we'll decide, yes. And God says, no, you say yes, and then I'll pull the curtain back. I'll turn the lights up. Then you'll see. You know, the best decision I've ever made was this decision that Jesus is teaching is from God and not just some guy making this stuff up. It took me the better part of two years to really nail this down for myself. And that decision has completely changed my life, and I believe my eternity. The second best decision I made was to marry my wife, Rebecca. Now, before Rebecca, my dating life was pretty much me saying yes in my heart to whoever I was dating, and then trying to get everyone else, including God, to get on board with what my heart wanted. That's the way I would do it. I would start dating, and early on I would think, oh, this is the one. I know it. And I'd talk to some people, and their heads would tilt, and they would, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. And so then I'd talk to someone else, and they oh, yeah, you're the kind of person I want to talk to. And my prayers to God would be something like, oh, God, make this happen. This is, this is what I want. And as a result of that approach, that led to train wreck after train wreck after train wreck that hurt everybody until I finally surrendered to God in this area. And I remember the moment when I just said, God, I'm a mess. And I am getting on my knees before you, and I'm saying yes. I'm, I'm going to do this from this point forward the way you want me to do it. At that point, I began, after that, I began to date my wife. And our dating relationship benefited from a lot of wise counsel. And I'll have to be honest, the longer we dated, the harder it was to be honest about the counsel, the input. You know, because our hearts were drawn together, and we really wanted to be married. But I would have to go to people who were ahead of us and that gave wise counsel and say, so what do you think about this? And they sometimes would say, well, I think you really need to think about that. And if this doesn't work out, then you need to be willing to break up. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. But again, I'd have to say, you know, God, I'll do that. I'll do whatever. I'll do yes. I, I just mostly want to know what you want me to do. And then God gave direction. I'll be forever grateful to God for his direction. But it followed the surrender. It didn't precede it. The second classic bad decision blunder is to make your decision based on what is popular. Make your decision based on what is popular. This is what most people do. That's why it's popular. The advice that Rehoboam got came from two groups. 
there was first the advice of the elders, and second, the advice of the young men. Now, when you read this at first, you might think, oh, yeah, yeah, classic generational divide conflict. But Rehoboam was 41 at this time. And these are the men that he grew up with as childhood friends. So these young men, it turns out, are not really young. They're in their 40s. What's the point? The point is not that they hadn't lived long enough, but that they hadn't lived long enough to see the impact of this kind of decision. The point is they are young in their perspective. They're not young in their age. In other words, they can't see the consequences as well because they haven't lived long enough to experience the consequences. And this is the challenge with popularity. What's popular is a moving target. It moves, in this culture, almost day by day. It's what's trending now. That's what's popular. It's driven by the younger group, not the older group. I mean, no one is polling those in their 60s and 70s to see where is the culture going. No, it's Generation Z that everybody wants to understand now. All the books are written about that. Because that's the future. They're driving what is and will be popular. But when it comes to decision-making, that's a challenge if you make your decisions based on what's popular because decisions, it turns out, are more like seeds that you plant into the ground. And then some of them a year later, some of them five years later, some 10, some 20, some 30 years later, pop up out of the ground and grow into a future that you then have to eat. You harvest that. God makes this clear in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This is the way the future folds. The future doesn't change based on what is popular. The future changed based on what we decided to plant earlier. So what comes out of the ground is not what is trending now, but what you decided back then. Our culture right now is making a lot of big, big moral decisions. I mean, decisions that in the history of humankind have never been made before. Because, well, it's trending. It's popular. It's exciting. It's new. But those are seeds. And in about 10 to 20 years, we're going to see the harvest. We're seeing a little bit of it now, but we're going to really see the harvest. And then it'll be too late to say, oh, we don't want that harvest. Well, no, we planted the seeds. Now we got to eat the harvest. Rehoboam and his friends had no way of seeing that they were about to begin a 2,900-year decline in Israel's future with this one decision. Now, there were many decisions, bad decisions after that, that precipitated this too. But they marked the beginning of it. They couldn't see this. The younger guys, honestly, the older guys couldn't see that far either. But the older guys could see far enough to see that this decision to ramp up the taxes would not be good for the future. Why could they see that? Because they had made this mistake themselves. They had already planted that seed. And they had already seen what grows out of that seed. They'd already seen the anger and the resentment and the chaos and the willingness, it turns out, to go to war over overtaxation. They had seen that. They hadn't just read the history books about it. They had experienced it. They had some perspective on this because of that. So if you want to make a good decision, get advice from those who are ahead of you. You want to make a good decision, get advice from those who are ahead of you. 
Bad decision, do what's popular. Good decision, get input from people who are ahead of you. So if you're making a marriage decision, you know, who should I marry? How should I date? It would really be smart and wise to get advice from those who have a good marriage and have had a good marriage for decades and, are, and appear to still like each other. That would be really helpful. I mean, if you want to be married for 30, 40, 50 years and enjoy each other's company, find someone who's done it and ask for input. How did you, how did you do it? How did you date? How do you, how do you put your marriage together? What do you do to keep smiling at each other? How does that work? They can really help you because they're ahead of you. If you're thinking about starting a business, talk to someone who's started one that is still going and being successful. Don't just talk to all your friends. I mean, they might give you some in good input, but you really want to get input from people who are ahead of you in the category of decision that you're making. Be sure as you do this that you look for wisdom, not just age. Just because the hair is gray doesn't mean there's wisdom, wisdom sitting under that scalp. It could just be time, not wisdom. So how can you tell if someone's wise? Jesus gave us a great indicator. He put it this way in Luke 7:35, "But wisdom is proved right by all her children." What, what he's saying is wisdom is proved to be wisdom, not by how it sounds. Now, we can listen to stuff, listen to people and think, wow, that person is brilliant. And they, they may be, but that may not be wisdom. They may have an incredibly popular podcast, but it could be their life's a wreck. You don't know. So wisdom is not proved to be wisdom by how it sounds or by how old it is but by what kind of children those ideas have produced. How long does that take? Well, if you're a parent, let me ask you, how long does it take before you finally look at your child and think, okay, we're good, or it's going to be a long life? How long does that take? Well, from my experience, it, it, it's longer than getting them out of high school. Because you get them out of high school, and they may leave the home and go to college or something else, but it's in the 20s that most people make the huge, giant decisions that shape their entire life. So in my experience, it's not until you know, 28, 30 or so that you have a sense of, okay, I feel good about this, or oh, God help. You'll know in about 30 years. So when it comes to getting wise input, look for someone who has at least a generation of experience in the area of your decision. Good experience. Good kids. Not, not just, I'm not just talking about kids, but the fruit of these decisions are good. And then ask them for advice. But the challenge in our culture right now is the dominant spirit of our age is progressive. That's the word you hear over and over and over in politics, in everything. It's progressive. What that means is the very best decision that we can make is brand new. It's a new idea that has never been thought of before, never dreamed of even five years ago. No one would have imagined that we would be doing this, but we're, we're progressing. That's the best decision. It's the new ones. 
Now, I'm all for progress. I mean, how could you not be for progress? Progress is great. But you see, progress is a secondary question. You know, are we making progress? That's a secondary question. What's the primary question? Where are we going? I mean, if we're lost, progress is not a good thing. You know, we're lost as a goose. Man, we are flying. We are, we are moving so fast in our lostness. Well, then, then, because progress is a secondary decision or question, that's no longer a good thing. If, for example, you decide to drive to San Diego this afternoon, you're going to be really interested in making progress, especially when you get stuck on Interstate 5. You know, your progress will be a good thing. But let's say you imagine that there's a different route than I-5 through Pendleton, and so you go off-road and you get lost. Well, if you want to make progress to San Diego, at that point, progress means that you turn around and you go back to where you made the mistake and you get back on the right road. That's progress. And in that case, if you're lost, if you made a mistake, if you've done what's wrong, then it turns out that the person who turns back earliest or first turns out, in fact, to be the most progressive of all. In Proverbs chapter 5, we read an analysis of a person who is at the end of their life. And it's the end of a life, in this person's case, that has been spent and characterized by ignoring God's wisdom, by just doing whatever they want to do. And here's what we read in Proverbs 5, 11 through 14. This, this is a, a very interesting summary, a very chilling summary. It says, at the end of your life, you know, if you've ignored wisdom, God's wisdom, at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, this is going to be your own analysis, how I hated discipline. I, I didn't want anyone to tell me what I didn't want to hear. How I spurned correction. I was going to do whatever I wanted to do. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I now have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the entire, the whole assembly. It says this person near the end of their life is going to be characterized by groans, groaning. Not so much an audible, oh, but that's what they're going to feel in their spirit. Just a, oh. By the way, this is why I think some people in their, their late, later stage in life, they just, they become really difficult. Because what's really going on the inside is they're, they're just groaning. They're just miserable. I mean, they're, of course, physically miserable. That's just part of aging. But on the inside, they're just, oh, they're groaning. They're mourning the end stages of a wasted life. They have spent their days doing whatever they felt like doing. Now, they're near the end of the wad of days. There's just a few days left. As it says, they have come to the brink of utter ruin. They're right on the edge of death. Maybe a few days, maybe a month, maybe a year. I've seen this. I've seen people at this brink. It's very different from the people who have sought to do what God wants to do when they face the end. It's a very different end. They're on the brink. And it turns out that all of this is happening in the midst, it says, of the whole assembly. What assembly? Well, it's the assembly of God's people. So do God's people then all gather to sit around this person's deathbed and 
collectively shake their heads as this person is groaning? Is that what this is saying? No, this, this is a virtual gathering. What's happening is this person who has wasted their life, they are now, with just a few days left, they are recalling all of the godly people who have come and gone from their lives, and they're wishing, they're wishing that they had listened to them. And this is tragic. So what's the post-mortem conclusion of this life? Well, this is what this person says about themselves at the brink. How I hated discipline. The word discipline means instruction with a corrective edge. The idea is anybody tried to give me any input that was different than what I wanted, I despised it. I hated it. Who has the right to correct us, to give us this kind of input? It's only those that we've asked for input from. This is why one of the five core values of our church is this statement, wisdom requires training. Training means you've put yourself in a position where you are going to let people give input to you. So if we're going to grow in wisdom and make better decisions, it's not going to come just as we learn the Bible. That's going to be a major part of it. But it's really going to gain traction as we put ourselves in the position to learn from people who know God's word and are ahead of us in how to do it. As it says here, we need to learn under instructors and teachers. That's a part of the process of the structure of discipline. By the way, the, the root of discipline is the word disciple. That's what Jesus calls us to, to be disciples of him. The idea is that you invite people to speak into your life. And like a coach in sports, they then can correct you. And you will take it seriously, and you might actually change as a result of the input. Now, we'll do this kind of thing. We'll, we'll submit ourselves to the discipline, to structure and, uh, in the structure and, of instructors and teachers. Maybe at the gym, if we're really serious about getting in shape, we'll get a coach. If we're in athletics and we're really serious about building our skill, we'll, we'll submit to some training. We'll get some instructors. But very few people, in my experience, are willing to take God this seriously to where they actually put themselves in a position where people can speak into their lives. So one of the best questions that I've asked myself throughout many years of my life is who right now is my coach in the ways of God? Who's my instructor? Who's my teacher? They have to be someone that knows you and they know God in his ways and they know some things that you don't know. They're ahead of you in life. Who is that? If, if a, a name, you don't have a name that comes to mind? Or if that person would be shocked to learn that you think of them as their coach, you probably don't really, you're probably not really submitted to training. Hebrews 13 verse 7 says something really interesting about the church that we tend to miss. This is what it says, Hebrews 13, 7, speaking of leaders in the church, says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Two sentences. The first sentence, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. How, how do you experience that? 
Well, you're experiencing that right now. I'm a leader in the church. I'm speaking God's words to you. So check. You've done that. And it's a good thing to do that regularly. But the second part involves more than just attending. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. How do you do that? Well, you have to know them well enough to know who they are and what decisions they've made by faith and how that's worked out. This is why it's important to do more than just attend and show up at a church. That's good, but that's only part of it. That's only part of the benefit and blessing that comes out of church life. It's as you get involved, say in this church, as you get involved in our growth groups, as you serve on different teams, as you take advantage of the training opportunities that we provide. It's in that context that you get to know people who are doing this. No one does it perfectly, but really seriously doing this. And then you can observe their life. You can see them make decisions, and you can see the outcome of those decisions, and you can say, you know, that's the kind of life I would like. So I'm going to, at this point of decision, I'm going to go ask them for input. You can get input from wise people. You know, looking back for me now at six decades of life, I shudder to think of the absolute mess I would have made in my life if it weren't for the input of wise people in my life. I mean, I can literally think of several key decision points where without corrective input, I would have, I would have made a really big mistake. I'm so grateful for the wise people that have instructed me. And I'll be honest, it's always hard to humble myself and say, all right, what do you think? That's hard. But I'm so grateful that I've done it. Actually, I wish that I would have done it even more. And church is often thought of mostly in terms of a place. And it is a place. I mean, we're gathering a place. But it's, it's the people that really provide the help. See, it's the lives of people where you get to see what faith looks like. In this context, you just get to hear ideas about faith. But it's as you get to know people who are really trying to do this, that's now when you get to see, you know, that's the kind of life I want. How long does it take to get to know somebody well enough to consider the outcome of their life? How long does that take? I don't know. But it takes a while. You know, you can get to know, like right now, if this is your first visit, you know a little bit something about my dating life. But you don't really know me. And it's impossible for all three services for individuals to really get to know me personally. So you can hear ideas from me. You can listen online and hear great ideas that can be really helpful, but you don't know the outcome of their way in life because you, you don't really know them. That takes time. That takes involvement in a church over time to really get to know that. But I say this because it's the people that you decide to run with in life that will end up shaping the quality of your decisions more than anything else. So if you want to make good decisions, not bad ones, it starts by first saying yes to God before you decide, before you lock your heart on what you really want to do. You say yes first. And if you're like me, like most people, you need to keep saying yes because the heart just keeps getting locked on what it wants. And then, secondly, by connecting to a church 
where you can get input from those whose lives are worth learning from because you've seen their life. You know them. Rather than just follow the latest progressive popular idea that we'll see what it does in 15 or 20 years. The decisions you make really matter. It's one of the most powerful things that God has given us is the freedom to decide what we're going to do. He's ready to provide all kinds of help and input. But we have to say yes. And we have to get a part of his body so we can learn from wise people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of the input that you have given many of us and for all the input that you stand ready to give. And we admit that oftentimes it just requires humility for us just to come before you and once again get on our knees before you and say, yes, we'll do whatever you want. And I pray for those in this room right now that are facing some big decisions. God, I ask that you would speak to them. Pray that you would help them to get their heart to a place where before they lock on to what they really want, that they will say yes to you. And if their heart's not there, God, help them to back up and surrender to you before they start seeking for input. And then, God, we thank you for all the wise people in our lives. Nobody's perfect, but there are a lot of people around us that have really sought to follow you. And we really benefit and have benefited from their input. We're thankful for that, and we thank you. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.